Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. And as we study these concepts of apologetics more, I just ask that you guide and direct and uh, help us to um, understand more aspects of your word and be able to communicate that to others. Uh, Lord, we know that there are people who reject your word and they reject everything that your word has to say. And ultimately, that is a heart issue of rebellion against you. We know that even with our perfect arguments, uh, we will not convince someone. We need you to be at work for that to happen. So I ask that uh, even as we are equipped with these truths and these facts and um, information, Lord, that is helpful and edifying to us, uh, we pray that you would help even use it as we seek to remove surface-level objections in order to pursue the hard issue. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. <coughs> okay. Oh, man. <coughs> Off to a flying start. Yeah, right in the mic. Apologetics. Remind us a few things, our definitions that we've been working from. Offering a defense for, a case for, or evidence for the veracity, the reliability of the Christian faith. Knowing what you believe, why you believe it, and being able to explain why in one some way. Uh, we've been talking last week, we began talking about the trustworthiness of the scriptures, and we're in this section as we're, remember from our chart before, we're looking at, uh, there's offensive and defensive apologetics, and we talked a little about offensive concepts, and now we're kind of answering, responding to truth claims that the non-Christian worldview would raise up against us, and we're responding to those. Last week, we talked about the claim that the Bible uh, cannot be trusted, and we began unpacking there's several elements to this argument. Uh, some say it's not been faithfully preserved, and we, that's what we spent the majority of our time last week discussing. And this week, we're going to examine the argument that it is not historically accurate. And then in future weeks, we'll get into it's merely a human product, product and the issues of canonicity, which um, canonicity is one of the more complex things to try to discuss. But we will do it because it is helpful and important. I'm going to skip over some of the stuff we talked about last week. There's that uh, graphic about how we see all the multiple manuscripts and how close they are in time to the original writing that shows us the consistency and the reliability of the text, even as it has been copied down through the centuries, and how that compares to other works of antiquity, how we have such a great witness to the scriptures. Uh, we also talked about uh, manuscript variants, and even in our, uh, our Sunday morning time when we get into the sermon, we're going to discuss a little bit of, of a variant. Um, so that should be a good time to talk about that. Um, but we see that even though we have these variants, the differences are minor. They don't really affect the meaning of the text in, in the uh, vast, vast majority of cases, and where it does affect meaning, those meanings are so, um, the differences between it would be so nuanced that you almost, it's hard even to tell a distinction in the overall meaning of what the text would come to mean. Uh, but we can identify differences, determine the likely original readings, and the agreements that we see across the variants is much more noteworthy than the differences so our conclusion is that the Bible has been faithfully preserved, that we can have confidence that what we read today is what the Bible originally said when it was originally written. Now, that is a aspect. Yeah, it's just running through the, the soundboard and stuff, yeah. <coughs> um, 
you may be able to convince someone through objective argumentation such as this, that if, you're, if someone's willing to be objective and honest with the evidence that's in front of them, you may be able to get someone to concede that, okay, sure, fine. As we have the Bible today, it accurately reflects what it was originally said when it was originally written. But that doesn't mean they're going to concede that it's the Word of God and that it's truth, right? That doesn't mean they're going to agree that this is true. Uh, we might, they might concede and agree that, oh, sure, um, you know, Homer's Iliad was uh, faithfully preserved, and it, it reads the same thing as what it originally written back then, but that doesn't mean it's a true story, right? They may have still some objections of that nature. And so some would say, well, the Bible's not historically accurate. Oh, and these are supposed to fly on the screen all at once, and here they are, or they're supposed to fly individually, and here they are all at once. <clears throat> The Bible is not historically accurate. So they would look at, oh, look at all these stories in the Bible. And there's no way that these stories are historically accurate. Archaeology has not proven that these stories are true. In fact, you know, for many, many years, you know, these, uh, there's these different, um, uh, you know, entire sections. You know, we have the book of Kings and all these lists of kings. And we can't find any record of those kings in any of the, uh, the uh, archaeological pieces that we've uncovered over the years. So, you know, it's just, it, it's all made up. None of it's real. Uh, there's no actual evidence with many of the stories. And until there is, right? The, the response to that is just, is almost just like a, um, it's just a complete Denial is, is just a, uh, a complete contradiction of what they're saying. Like, oh, I say A. Well, that's not true. B is actually true. <laughs> like, that's, that's almost all you can say, because if someone's not going to be willing to be honest with the archaeological evidence, you know, what are you going to do? The truth is that the Bible is the most documented book, the most well-documented book of the ancient world. There have been so many archaeologists who have used the Scriptures almost like a map to finding ancient civilizations and ancient cities that are buried beneath layers and layers of sediment that have built up over the years. Like, it has just been a remarkable thing. For many, many years, people denied that the city of Jericho existed according to the biblical record. You know, the walls came tumbling down. Oh, that never happened. Because we know where Jericho is, and we dig, and we find out, no, there's no evidence of anything like that. <clears throat> Yeah. <laughs> One of my hmm? Christians in waiting. There you go. One of my um, one of my professors, um, uh, Doug Bookman, over at Shepherd's Seminary. He has a talk about the walls of Jericho and about the uh, the claims that existed, and then how someone figured out that they were digging in the slightly wrong spot and to the into the wrong depth, and once they dug to that depth, they found not only a city, but walls that fell outwards. In sieges, when there's an attack coming against it, the, the walls, if they get pushed in, they get pushed inward. These walls fell outward, which is like, what's that? Well, at that point, everything was destroyed. So, you know, 
according to the biblical text, we know, yeah, Rahab's home, it, yeah, her corner, her, her portion was preserved. We know that. <clears throat> Temperatures that are impossible per, to produce through just a normal burning, like <laughs> some cataclysmic event, you know, whatever. Some, yeah, it's like, oh, maybe there was a meteor that fell from the sky. It's like, yeah, God rained down hellfire upon them. Like, <laughs> Yeah, the the un, the unbelieving mind will find any way that they can to explain away what is the evidence that's right there in front of them. That's the whole point. Well, I can agree that it was a meteor. That that the Bible describes as the hellfire and the brimstone. Like like this is what like like sure I'm okay if that whether you say that that uh, hellfire and brimstone was from a volcano or from outer space, I don't care. It's, it's what happened. Like, this is what happened. So it, the issue is never the evidence, and that underscores the point. If we're going to find ways to explain away anything else, you know, they're going to turn around and say, well, this, uh, this meteor and these things that came and, and rained upon them, that generated the legend of Sodom and Gomorrah. So they'll flip it around and say, you know, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Well, they'll, they'll, they'll put the order in their, according to their presuppositional framework. Yeah, it, it's, this is why our methodology is so important. And this is why how we address people is not with the viewpoint to convince them of evidence, because the issue is never the evidence. Something happened here. Yeah. <clears throat> right. Yeah. So, so there is, the evidence is there, right? Archaeology has proven to be a very reliable 
uh, attestation to the historicity of many of the events in the scriptures. And the things that are absent from the archaeological record is not a problem for us, as many would try to make it a problem to be. It's just like, well, just because, you know, you haven't found evidence of it, A, doesn't mean that it's not there, and B, doesn't mean that it didn't happen. Like, it, it, there's so many other things that have been confirmed. Right. And we, there is a, uh, the, now when we start looking at other things, so like, um, you know, this, I want to contrast this, the evidence that there is for many of the biblical stories and many of the biblical places and events and all these things that does exist in vast quantities does contrast strongly with things like the Book of Mormon, for example, where supposedly, you know, there's, you know, the some Israelites traveled to the Americas and settled the Americas and existed, pre- yeah, well, across, there's several places in the Americas. Um, so, yeah, Illinois, um, there's a variety of places, Missouri, New York. So, supposedly, you know, there's this ancient civilization that predated many of, you know, what the Native American populations that existed. There's no... Like, genuinely, there's no evidence. Like, no, there's never been a shred of archaeological evidence that's ever been discovered to support the claims. Uh, animals. Uh, there was claims of, like, elephants or uh, different animals in the Americas that have never existed in the Americas. It's in the Book of Mormon. Well, there's just no... Well, you start talking, and some of Mormon apologists will literally make the claim, well, God supernaturally eliminated and erased that portion of the, of archaeology, like the, of that depth or whatever. Like, it's just like, I, I guess, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a strange thing. Yeah, that's right. So I, I mentioned that this isn't, this isn't an anti-Mormonism class, right? But it's, it stands in contrast to the evidence that does exist for the biblical data. Like, it's, the, it's there. There's a, such a vast difference between the two things. All attempts, or not I say all attempts, many attempts to discredit the, discredit the historicity of various events, places, and landmarks have failed because we eventually find something. And again, to your, like what you said earlier, the, the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. There may have been a tablet or, you know, inscriptions that told about these different kings that just haven't survived time. Not everything has. Like, what we have found even has been fragments. But we continue to find fragments, and every now and again we find something that says, oh, look, this lines up with a biblical name. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yes. <clears throat> yeah. Not that long ago, I have to pull up the details of it, but not that long ago. So a lot of people, you know, we read through the book of Judges, and uh, Gideon is such a key figure. Well, not that long ago, there was a, um, a clay shop, 
pottery shard that had an inscription that had it wasn't it was um Jerubavel, yeah that's his other name uh, that was inscribed on it it's like oh hey look here's evidence uh that this guy was a real person <clears throat> yes yeah it dates to the time period yeah yeah so there's lots of lots of archaeological evidence to try to look at, and, the, and we, most of the stuff that I've been giving examples for just now has been Old Testament, because that's the stuff that is the hardest to attest to because it's just so much further ago, like it's so much further removed. <clears throat> yeah. Well, you you run into um, you run into an interesting thing where. Uh, you know, okay, so they would inscribe things on stone or clay or something hard like that, and it, that's, that's a lot more permanent than lasting than later on when it starts getting inscribed on, like, animal skins. And, and like, um, when papyrus was developed, it was, you know, it's, it's pressed reeds and, you know, all this kind of stuff, which we still have a remarkable amount that has survived from even of that. But that's literally biodegradable, right? Like, <laughs> like <clears throat> so, you know... There is elements of that that does affect how much survives in just the ancient and the, the wars and all those sorts of things. But the fact that there is attestation to these things, like, we can't just ignore that. Uh, there are other, like, so I've got on the third point here, contemporary writers confirm different events. So there are uh, different writers who have, you know, we think of, like, um, Josephus, you know, going back to shortly after... Uh, you know, during the time when the New Testament was being written. Um, different historical writers that are not, um, would not be allies with the biblical text, per se, like they, uh, but, but they write about the same things that scriptures write about, and they cor corroborate the details of what we do see in the biblical text. Uh, so we can look at these different things and say, no, Hey, you're claiming the Bible is not historically accurate. We actually have a lot of evidence that shows us that it is, and it's been a reliable guide for many, many years in the field of archaeology. Now, again, that all by itself is not a incredible apologetic argument that's just going to make someone get to their knees and believe in Jesus Christ. Like as we've discussed, suppress and replace, but it removes the barrier. You say, well, you. <clears throat> Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Spiritual things. Yeah. There was a person, I can't remember their name, and um, I can give you the link to the resource if you'd like it. I have it. Um, but they developed this, uh, this rubric or framework 
on how to evaluate historical events and in, in historical records. So uh, there are some people that would look at the Bible and say, well, even if, you know, there is some evidence, that doesn't mean that, you know, the stories weren't embellished or elaborated and kind of like, uh, you know, you weave in different things like, oh, yeah, my fish was this big. This is how big my fish was, you know. Yeah. And it's like, okay, well, is there a way that we can evaluate whether or not these individuals who are writing these things were telling the truth in all these details? And they developed this, I think it's about a four-point or five-point rubric. Historical claims are strong when supported by multiple independent sources. So, okay, we have the biblical text. Um, if there are extra biblical resources and things that attest to something similar, hey, that, hey, you know, maybe we have a stronger case here than for something else. Okay? Should not be hard to accept that. Historical claims which are attested to by enemies are more likely to be authentic since enemies are unsympathetic and often hostile witnesses. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And there are historical records of things of, you know, we think of Josephus in particular, some of the things that he wrote about attesting to remarkable things that were going on in that time period. Now, he doesn't attribute it to the Lord, and he doesn't attribute it to anything divine, but he makes mention that these things were things that were going on. Historical claims, which include embarrassing admissions, reflect honest reporting rather than creative storytelling. This is what you were saying a moment ago, Jim, with, you know, we, we generally discard hearsay except for when it's kind of to your own disadvantage. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So even you, you come into the New Testament, so you mentioned Moses and how he's just like, he is not a, he's not portrayed as a man of faith, in the, especially in the early portions of Exodus, um, where God had to, yeah. You come into the New Testament, we read the Gospels that are written by disciples who are talking about how, you know, especially in the book of Mark where Mark is uh, likely drawing from Peter's testimony and Peter's testimony about himself is not the, kind, it's not the strongest, not the best kind of testimony that you would want for an individual. And he's just saying it like this is just how we were, like this is, this is how it was. So there, there's a higher degree of, of trustworthiness when someone is willing to say, yeah, about that. that, that's how we were, like, embarrassing details, 
more likely to reflect honest reporting than creative storytelling. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and yeah. 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 There's a couple more points in this rubric. Historical claims are strong when supported by eyewitness testimony. Uh, and this is so if we open up. Opening up the book of Luke. And uh, the first verse in Luke where Luke tells why he's writing what he's writing and what he's setting out to do. And he says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And that is carried on in the book of Acts as well, as Luke, Acts is almost like, you know, we call Acts as a different book. It's almost like, yeah, Luke part, it's the sequel, right? You got Luke and Luke 2, right? <laughs> and that's where uh, Luke is continuing to do that. He's interviewed many people, good morning, uh, eyewitness testimony, and writing it so that, and he says, so that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Like, we're not making this stuff up. Eyewitness testimony. <clears throat> yeah. Exactly. <clears throat> right. Yeah. Paul is going to make references to like 500 eyewitnesses that saw Jesus Christ all at once, etc. The last point in this rubric that this individual developed, historical claims which are supported by early testimony are more reliable and less likely to be the result of legendary development. And this kind of takes us back to, you know, we, we were looking at, um, you know, some of that, that, that graphic that I put up of the, di the distance in time between when the books were written in relation to the time when the events occurred and then the amount of time that developed between when we have the earliest manuscripts. All of that plays into a factor for us to see that the, that the testimony is so close to the original events that there's very little time for legends to develop and to become embellished because there were still people who were alive at the time when this stuff was being reported and being spread around, they were, they were alive and they could say, well, that's, okay, uh, I was there when that fish was caught and it wasn't this big, like it was this big. Like they could correct the record, whereas 
Uh, you look at some other uh, tales that have been subject to legendary development. Well, by the time they get to that legendary status, so much time has passed that there's no one to correct the record. Yeah. Yeah. Sure, sure. We have no way to, we, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So really, we see that there is so much, you know, when we consider those, that rubric that that individual developed for these historical claims, um, The Bible lines up and, and withstands these kinds of tests. Now, someone applied these level of claims to specifically one particular historical event, the resurrection of Christ, and there's, there's different ways that people have tried to demonstrate and prove the, try to prove the historicity of the resurrection. Of course, that, a lot of people look at the resurrection, so you read like uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, it says, if, if Christ hasn't been raised, we're still in our sins. Like, Everything boils down to the resurrection of Christ. And if that hasn't happened, nothing else in the rest of the Bible even matters. And so that has become the focus of many apologetic methodologies that almost is like, I'm going to set out and I'm going to prove to you the resurrection, and then I'll build the rest of Christianity around that and try to give that to you. And I think there's, there can be some helpfulness to that. Um, it's not where the Bible starts, and so I'm kind of I'm, I'm hesitant to endorse that as a methodology. But I think the argumentation can be helpful, so we're going to re review a couple of them. There's two general approaches, and the first one is called the minimal facts approach. 
And it begins by establishing the historical reality of the resurrection by pointing to there are four minimal facts that are universally accepted by all honest scholars, even those who reject Christ. So if we think about, to that rubric of historical events are more likely to be true if corroborated by even individuals that are hostile to, uh, they're hostile witnesses, well, these four facts would fit in that category. And there are objections and different theories about trying to reconcile these things, but they all fail, and ultimately the only logical conclusion is that Christ really did rise from the dead. These are the four minimal facts. Fact number one, the death of Christ by crucifixion. That is so historically attested to that to deny it, you have to, you have to deny a lot of what we accept as true about history just from the, de- the records that we have. Fact number two is that there was an empty tomb. Now, people are going to bring different objections and try to posit different theories about why that tomb was empty, but no one can, no, his, no honest scholar can d- debate the fact that the tomb was empty. There were soldiers, yeah. Fact number three, the post-resurrection appearances. And again, people are going to try to come up with different theories. So the empty tomb. Well, the disciples stole the body. Well, you know, there's the swoon theory. He kind of revived. And so that plays in with the post-resurrection appearances. Well, he, he swooned. He didn't actually die. And so he didn't actually rise again from the dead. It's a long swoon. Yes. Medically, it's impossible for someone to endure what he endured and not... Medically, medically, what happened on the cross was that his heart exploded. That's how he died. No. Yes. So all, all those different theories about the, those aspects just completely fall apart when you start looking at the things, and so then the fourth fact is the origin of the Christian faith. Historically, we know that it originated in and around Jerusalem, and the details that fell out of that, and how the apostles went from being scared individuals who were literally hiding in a room scared for their lives to being such uh, public witnesses that they were willing to die for what they believed to be true. And the argument goes if, you know, it's because of the origin of the Christian faith, you look at how these apostles lived and, and the things that they did, it doesn't make sense. If they were lying about all this stuff, why would they die for it? People don't die for things that they know to be false. Now, maybe they were deceived, right? or even if they're questioning me, like, yeah, like, I think this is what happened, but I'm not quite sure, right? Yeah. We're not going to die for something like that. We die for things that we are absolutely convictionally believing. Now, the argument is that, well, maybe they were just deceived. That many of them? (sighs) Yeah. So these are called the minimal facts that are accepted that all would point to the reality of the historical event. Yes, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. There's another approach that's called the maximal data approach. And it goes like this. And this kind of tie, there's some overlap with the other approach. One, the apostles were either deceivers, deceived, or were telling the truth. There's really no other options. They were either lying, 
Well, okay, let's, let's just go through the rest of it. They were not deceivers because okay, they died for genuine belief. Like, they, whether or not it was true or not, they certainly believed it was true. But they weren't merely mistaken or deceived because we have the testimony. There's eyewitness testimony. There was touch, they, they felt Jesus Christ's hands. They were talking with Jesus. Um, John says what we have heard, what we have seen, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have touched with our hands, what our hands have handled, that is what we have passed on to you. Like, there is just, there's a tangibility to this. There's no ghost. You know, there was no hallucination. Like, there was tangible evidence of this eyewitness testimony, etc. They were not merely mistaken or deceived. Therefore, the conclusion is they were telling the truth. And it's a really simple argumentation, really. It's just like, you know, there's the, there's the argument about Jesus. He was either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord, right? And so you can look at the different things that he said and try to make your conclusion. And this is a similar argument as that. It's like either they were deceivers, they were deceived, or they were telling the truth. And being deceivers and being deceived just doesn't add up with the data. So there's, that's, that's called a maximal data approach to defending the historicity of the resurrection, really all of what the apostles wrote about. So all of that points us in a particular direction as we consider Old Testament data, as we consider New Testament data. The Bible is historically accurate. Like the things that are there that we have evidence for has been demonstrated, it's been proven, it's been corroborated. There's attestation to it from multiple sources. The evidence is there. But what we keep coming back to and we keep reflecting upon is that the issue is always there's, it's not about the evidence. There's rebellion in the heart of mankind, and that is why there remains unbelief. Nevertheless, these things are helpful for us. They're edifying, and they help remove the surface-level objections, right, and can help move the conversation forward as we're having conversations with people. We, I'm going to have to end it there because we're out of time. Um, Still to come is... uh, Oh, I already forget what was on that slide. The canonicity of the scriptures and the argument that the Bible is merely a human product. Um, and addressing those two things is a, is a different kind of argument than this. Like, we can look at evidence and we can look at different things and say, well, no, you're just, you're just wrong. The, these other things is a different, uh, is a different level. So let's, let's bow for prayer and wrap up our time for this class for now. Lord, we thank you so much for just being able to have a trustworthy confidence in your word. Lord, we know that your word is true. It's been uh, corroborated and testified to. And Lord, ultimately, even if we had um, just a lack of that, of, of that level of evidence, Lord, we can still have confidence in your word uh, because of its source, that it comes from you. So we thank you for that, and we're uh, we praise you that you are you are God. You have revealed yourself, and you do not lie, and you have given us your word. So we praise you. We thank you. pray that you'll give us great confidence in your word and that we will communicate your truth to others with boldness. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.